The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Good evening, everyone. Um, quick survey question. How many of you were here uh, two weeks ago when I gave a talk on... Oh, quite a few. Well, I'm supposed to practice humility and uh, contentment, but it does gladden my heart to see that so many of you dared to come back and hear me out again. So thank you for fanning my ego. And the other reason I asked is um, two weeks ago I talked about um, one aspect of the basics of practice, which is um, samadhi practice or concentration practice. So as I was thinking about what to talk about today, I thought it just makes sense for me to talk about the other half. I talked about samadhi and vipassana, so I decided I'll give a talk on vipassana. The reason I took the survey is I didn't know if it would make much sense to um, those of you if you hadn't been here two weeks ago. But then as I took on this um, topic and decided to, prepare, as I prepared for it, I realized that I had bitten off more than I can chew. So I, uh, this is, I'm saying this sincerely, that um, this talk got a little uh, out of hand. So it's, <laughs> this is all of Buddha's teachings. So... I'm gonna I'm gonna condense it uh, in about 45 minutes. So um, forgive me, but I'll do my best. Be mindful of any confusion that arises in your mind. Come back to your body and feel the confusion um, as energy forces in your body. So for those of you who don't know who I am, um, my name is Ramesh. Um, I'm a psychiatrist by profession, and um, I give these talks once in a while. Um, so. So the concentration practice or samadhi practice that I talked about um, has a specific purpose. It can either serve as a, uh, it can be in the service of um, mindfulness practice or vipassana practice, but it can also be a standalone practice um, just to cultivate a sense of calm, um, concentration, focus, and a sense of contentment. But at its core, what we practice here uh, in this tradition, but in, in general, the Buddhist practice is less about uh, developing calmness and contentment and more about understanding the nature of our minds and hearts, um, which is usually messy. And so if you've been practicing for a while and you have day after day, week after week of contentment, well, uh, your mind has created a nice little buffer zone for yourself. You are not truly being mindful because most lives are pretty messy and our minds are even more messy. But I, I've been practicing for about 10 years, and I find uh, it's become a regular pattern for me to uh, have a little you know, burst of um, some, some uh, progress in my practice, so to speak, and then I plateau. And I've now learned that every time I feel like I've plateaued, um, there's something my mind has become very comfortable, I found a comfort zone, and has decided to just stay there. I'm not really investigating. And so um, I've given other talks on some of the techniques that I've, uh, that I've found helpful to break out of the shell. But one of the things that I found very helpful is going back to basics. And so uh, now, and after a few years, I understood why Mark, I know, keeps coming back to the basics about the Four Noble Truths, the, you know, the, the kind of basic tenets of Buddhist practice. And it's only after four or five years that I realized that Every time I hear it, it's not like it's new, but my mind is in a different place compared to two years earlier, so it's more receptive to uh, nuances, different aspects of this. So it's become a habit of mine at least once a year when I feel like either I'm stagnating or I don't have the energy, the zing, uh, to go back to basics. And so I'll just share with you at least some of the uh, resources that I turn to um, to reconnect with practice. So one of the, first of all, what I watch for is uh, practice becoming very easy. You know, I get into, I get into a routine. So every day, six o'clock for 15 minutes, I do a concentration practice. Every evening from eight to eight forty-five, I do sitting practice. And again, you know, I'm showing off. It's not every day, maybe two, three days a week, but you know, it, it but it's still, there is a continuity there. Um, but after a while, there's a sense of, I can do it in my sleep. You know, I wake up at six o'clock, but you know, apart from the fact that I, I have my eyes open for a little while, I can go and do that concentration practice listening to the ticking clock without really much benefit other than like brushing my teeth. So it almost becomes like a mindless habit. 
which is the opposite of mindful habit. And then the other thing is my mind starts talking about, you know, maybe I'll do samadhi for a few days, maybe I'll do breathing practice for a few days, maybe I'll do, you know, physical uh, vedana, the feeling tone practice some days, uh, maybe I should do some heart practices, you know, uh, metta practice or generosity. And so there's a sense of lack of direction, lack of some kind of a framework within which I'm trying to understand and study my, my body-mind. So these are the clues to me um, that tell me that and if I want to make some kind of progress, some kind of further growth in my practice, I have to you know, come back and reconnect with what I, where I found energy uh, to start with. So I mentioned samadhi, which is concentration practice. Vipassana is what's called insight practice or wisdom practice. Um, then there's a third word that is often used in this context, which is sati, and which is translated as um, mindfulness. But it's just like with concentration, just because you trained your mind to concentrate doesn't make it wise. Just because you're trained to mind, train your mind to become mindful in the present moment doesn't make it wise. You know, I can be, I can just train myself like a dog to, like a puppy, I can train my mind to keep coming back, but then also connecting to, I'm angry. You know, this is how it is, I'm angry. I really don't get beyond that emotional state. I may be better off than, uh, you know, a few months earlier when I may have been angry and not realized it, but just because I'm aware now that I am angry and I'm mindful of being angry doesn't get me to the next level of the causes and conditions. You know, what are the factors that cause anger to arise in this situation? And how does, how does my body relate to this anger? How does my body relate to the external triggers of this anger? That is the core of wisdom practice. And so sati or mindfulness or samadhi or concentration are important tools, essential tools for your mindfulness practice. But at the end of the day, the bigger training is to train your mind to see through clearly through the fog of our thought process, our delusions. So vipassana, again, there are these are all Pali words that are translated into English, by, and most teachers will acknowledge that you know no single word captures the essence, essence of these words. But some of the words that they, uh, phrases used for vipassana are clear seeing or seeing through uh, the fog of uh, the mind-created uh, delusion. But the other part, and the reason why I said that mindfulness alone is not sufficient is there are two other words used in, uh, in the text. One is called sati panya. Now, sati is mindfulness and panya is wisdom. And so that the, the idea of using that combination is to reinforce the fact that mindfulness alone is not enough, that wisdom has to accompany it. If not, it just becomes another habit. And that's why I get troubled when I feel like I'm being mindful of my anger, I'm being mindful of my lust, I'm being mindful of my craving. It doesn't get me anywhere. I'm just stuck in the story of, well, I'm in the present moment. And so I need to get beyond that next level. So just to um, recapitulate some of the differences between samadhi practices and um, vipassana practice. So um, samadhi can just be a skill that you learn, just like learning to play the piano or being good at you know, playing a sport. Uh, it's a skill, it's a training of the mind, and you can be completely, un, um, you can be completely uh, unwise, you can be a criminal and be a very concentrated person. You can be a, a great uh, basketball player and be a complete jerk in the rest of your life. And so the reason I mention it is that concentration is often the place or point of entry into um, meditation practice, but let's not mistake just concentration skills for any kind of wisdom. The other part of concentration practice, as I mentioned before, is that the whole idea is focus. It's narrowing. It's one-pointedness. Uh, it's constricting. It's also exclusionary. So it's helpful when you feel like your, your mind is distracted in 10, 15 directions. Your, day, your, your life is busy with work and kids and spouse and parents. So you feel like, you know, there is no way I can do any kind of mindful practice. I need to have some calmness in my mind first. That's a good first step to do it. But again, 
you realize that by its very nature, it's exclusionary and constriction. So if mindful awareness is the broad understanding of the full nature of uh, the mind, heart, and our interaction with the world, uh, concentration practice alone won't get us there. On the other hand, vipassana is all about, uh, as I said, seeing clearly. Vipassana apparently means seeing clearly. Um, and what are we seeing clearly through? We all, I mean, those of you who are here, not those of you who are here, all of you who are here, there was something that you felt in your daily lives that caused you to conclude that life as you perceive it, life as you experience it, there is there's something unsatisfying about it. But your normal ways of trying to figure out why is it unsatisfactory didn't help you. And so then you hear something about Buddhism, and then, you know, one of the first tenets is, life is unsatisfactory. And then followed by, you know, after that, are some of the classic teachings of, why is life unsatisfactory? There is a possibility of freedom from this dissatisfaction, and there is a way of going about it. And so that's what brings us here. And so, once you've decided to commit to this, then you may as well go through it, go through with the process. So the difference, one difference between samadhi and vipassana, I find, is that this requires a much higher level, a deeper level of commitment. Because as you start examining things, you'll come across a lot of mess. And it takes a certain level of fortitude and just, you know, persistent patience to see through it. And so um, with samadhi, you can just focus on one area and just ignore the other aspects of your life. Whereas once you start committing to to vipassana practice, you will start seeing some of the messiness of your own lives and our natural tendencies to either ignore them, pretend they're not there, do anything to get away from it. We call it aversion. So vipassana is seeing through that aversion, being with the aversion. And so one big difference is uh, is are you able to keep energizing your practice because that's what it's going to take for you to stay committed with it. Then, uh, in terms of practice, there are three or four ways that our uh, teachers talk about. There are there are three ways that are taught in the by some teachers, and then I added a fourth one, which is more contemporary. So one is called Suttamaya Panya. This is uh, you hear something that's interesting, it piques your interest and you start reading books, and then you show up at meetings like this to listen to someone speak. Uh, And I was thinking how to convey it, so this is the analogy that came to mind. Um, I like reading. Um, I I think I like literature. But the Suttamaya Panya would be just me reading one book after the other. You know, I enjoy books, I put the book down, pick up the next book, I enjoy the book, and then go on from book to book. There's nothing wrong with that, but... um, I can't say that I'm, a lit- I'm, a, uh, I'm an English major. I can't say that I really understood the books. But it's better than you know, wandering on the internet or watching TV. It's still a better thing to do. The next level is called Chintamaya Panya. This is, you are not just listening to Dharma talks or reading books, but you're spending some time contemplating them. It's still in the thought process. So with my analogy of uh, books, this is not only do I read a book, but I write a small essay summarizing what I got out of the book. Or I join a book club and you know, get, into, get into a deeper level. And so I get other people's perspectives and um, have a better understanding of the book. The third level is called Bhavana Maya Panya. And Bhavana is to cultivate. And this is literally to experience the process. So when it comes to Vipassana, you can read about it. You can discuss it, but at the end of the day, it's a life-transforming experience. So unless you experience it, unless you take the steps to actually put it into your day-to-day experiences, it still becomes a, a good habit, but not really a wisdom practice. And the analogy in the book would be for me to actually take some classes on you know, writing, creative writing, and get into the act of you know, writing a book or writing some chapters. It's actually getting a deep dive into the what it takes to be a, a literate person, so to speak. And then I had I can't reiterate this enough. It, this vipassana requires sustained commitment. That does not mean you'll fall off the wagon. 
you know, that can you can start. You may you may not practice for weeks, and then you can come back. That doesn't mean you drop the commitment. It's just that you know things happened in your life that caused you not to practice at least sitting meditation on a regular basis. But the commitment is more of an intention, and and I'll elaborate on how you can set that. But this is a level of you cannot be doing certain activities in life that are clearly unwholesome, unhealthy, and still commit yourself to a uh, vipassana practice. I mean, you may have a certain very bad habit, and you also may want to commit yourself to spiritual practice. Don't assume that you can give up the bad habit instantaneously, but recognize that there has to be some intention to give up that habit, however long it takes. So that the intention is there. So that that intention of committing to vipassana practice also weakens your hold that the hold that this unhealthy habit may have on your um, on your habits. Few other things that help. So one is you know coming to a place like this uh, was probably the biggest thing that helped me. Um, there is something about the physical structure of a building. So when my mind once comes up with an excuse to do something else. Just bringing up the image of a place like this, you know, just the general sense of the Sangha, the people, um, you know, helps me direct myself in the right, you know, face in the right direction. The second thing was, of course, concentration practice you can do on your own. Vipassana practice is very difficult to do without a teacher. Um, I check in with Mark twice a year. Um, but there is a sense of I can, I also always have the option of checking in as needed because when you find yourself in a plateau or when you find yourself spinning your wheels, um, it's a teacher who knows, who will know you well enough to give you the right kind of guidance for that state. So all the things that I talk about in the talks here are stuff that I picked up from Mark over the years and are, and are now helping me when I find myself in a rut. The other thing is retreats are helpful. And of course, it's not possible for everyone. But at the very least, at least signing up for half a day or a full day retreat three to four times a year uh, would definitely give you the level of insights and awareness that really is not possible just doing half an hour of sitting meditation every day. How has the flow been thus far? Okay. There are two ladies sitting here who promised me they wouldn't show up and they're making me extremely nervous. I won't say who they are, but they know. <laughs> it is cruel, and that's all right. So, and those of you who've been coming here for a while, you know that the Buddhist teachings are full of lists. And they arose because at the time that he taught 2,500 years ago, uh, it was mostly a, a kind of oral society, all the teachings were oral, and it's easier to remember lists than uh, paragraphs. Um, I'm not a big fan of lists, um, just because, uh, you know, in medical school, uh, we were, you know, it's all facts in medicines, and there's no logic. So we were taught to just remember mnemonics. And at the end of the day, I ended up with 20 mnemonics, but they hadn't, didn't have a clue what they stood for. So I memorized all the mnemonics, but, okay, when something came up, I didn't know what to do with them. Same with the list. After a while, there are two of this, three of this, five of this, six of this, seven of this. And so it becomes another Suttamaya Panya. You know, it's nice, interesting if you're into lists. If you have that kind of OCD, you can do that. But not much wisdom in it. Sorry, wasn't a pejorative term. It was just, I can get into trouble, right? These are recorded and off on internet. So, but when it comes to this this aspect of committing yourself to your practice, I found these core uh, lists absolutely essential. I'm preaching a little here, but uh, hear me out. So the first is the Four Noble Truths. So how many of you are totally familiar with the Four Noble Truths? I'm sure you have more energy than just for this. <laughs> okay, some. Okay, I'll, let me just give a... It's a very brief outline, because this is at the very heart of um, Buddhist practice. This is the, the why of practice. You know, you didn't show up here on a beautiful day just because. There's something that, you know, that, that said this is a better thing to do than the alternatives available to you. But that's not mindfulness. If you were mindful, you ought to understand what is it that brought you here. 
what is it that said that being here is better than the alternative? Because at the end of the day, you want to understand your mind. If you do it mindlessly, then after you know four or five months of doing this, you conclude that, well, I've listened to the same old four noble truths for six months. I've, I've gotten nowhere. The purpose was not to listen to the four noble truths, but was to get the concepts and then apply them to your daily life. So the first noble truth is that there is uh, dissatisfaction in life. Now, often mention life is suffering. No, life is not suffering. You walk out today, this evening, there is not much suffering there. You know, just an hour ago, there was beautiful 70 degrees temperature, blue skies, green, you know, leaves on the trees. That's not suffering. But if your desire was, I wish it would stay like this for the rest of the month, for the next three months, I wish I didn't have to stay here and through the winter. That's the suffering associated with a beautiful spring day. So you have a beautiful spring day, you connect with the pleasure, and then you have the attachment to the pleasure, and then you don't want to miss the pleasure, and your mind goes off. And it happens in a fraction of a second. Before you know it, you're planning your cruise in December, just to get away. That is Dukkha. So that is the first noble truth of suffering. Life is in suffering. Bad things happen in life but it's how we relate to them is what is suffering. And then, um, so the second noble truth is that suffering arises because of craving or attachment. But you can also, there's also the negative aspect to it. So I, you know, you can have somebody painful in your life whether it's in your family life or professional life, not wanting them to be part of your life, or wishing they were different, is craving. Because it's a negative craving. You want craving for absence of that person in your life. So the second noble truth says that, you know, suffering arises because of craving. But sometimes people think of chocolate and craving, or, you know, attachment to positive things. But our aversion to negative things is also a form of craving, because we want craving for the absence of these painful conditions in our lives. A bigger craving, especially in our modern day lives, I think, is the attachment to views. You know, whether it's about certain politicians, certain sports, you know, anything. You, you'd be amazed as you start watching your mind's um, tendencies to come up with an opinion about every little thing that happens. Just behind this is a self-attached opinion that I am right and that person is wrong. And so it takes a little while of parsing to realize that any, even a completely detached opinion about something, uh, an object or an event out there has an I attached to it. For example, if you comment that team A is going to win over team B, you have no personal attachment. You see this and you say team A is going to win. Just watch your mind if somebody comes in and says, no, I don't think so. You're wrong. Team B is going to win. Even if you have no personal connection to the outcome of that game, just because someone contradicted you is a quick jab. And that's what the Buddha keeps talking about. Um, and I'll talk about a little later about what's called the three characteristics. And one of them is the uh, what's called anatta or absence of self. And again, people think, well, the self is here. How can there be no self? This is what he's pointing out, I think, is how much we create a self out of every little interaction in life. Somebody contradicting us over something that completely has no impact on our life can foster a sense of self and an outrage over some fairly innocuous comment. The third um, uh, noble truth, the first is there is potential for suffering in life. The second is that there is uh, our tendency to uh, crave or develop aversion uh, is what leads to, um, contributes to suffering. The third is that freedom is possible. And the way I look at it is not that there's a final state of nirvana where I'll have a you know big halo behind my head and I'll be walking on water. No, it's that at least my understanding and what I have, what keeps me going is that I look back two years ago, a certain situation in life that would have had me completely in knots of all kinds of suffering, craving, aversion. Now the same situation arises in my life and there is a sense of freedom. I may still be angry at the situation, but I'm not all tied up in knots. And to me, that is freedom. Because that same situation two years ago would have ruined my whole weekend. A, a kind of a, a difficult conversation with a colleague on a Friday, 
I would be stewing over it all weekend until Monday, plotting all kinds of revenges, etc. And now, you know, that conversation still engenders sense of distress, you know, discomfort, maybe anger, frustration, but that's a normal offshoot of a difficult conversation. But I don't have to carry it with me through the weekend. But it's not like I tried to drop it. It's the process of this practice, watching the kind of dynamic between a trigger, my reaction, my uh, my kind of reactivity patterns, over a period of years caused these bonds to weaken. And so now I believe that's one aspect of what the Buddha talked about, freedom is possible. And then the fourth um, noble truth is the, um, the Eightfold Path. And that's the next list. That's the Eightfold Path, which is the how of practice. So we know why we practice, because these basic premises. Again, the, the Buddha is very clear, and all the teachers nowadays are very clear. These are not uh, theological principles for you to believe and memorize and believe. These are all hypotheses for all of us to test them out and determine for ourselves if they have any validity. So what are the Eightfold Path? And this is not something uh, for an hour-long talk. So I'm just going to touch upon just the brief, broadest outlines. By the way, I also wanted to mention, for each of these lists, I have one particular uh, text that I go to. And so for the Four Noble Truths, uh, there was a very nice monograph by Ajahn Sumedho. It's available for free as PDF online. Um, just a very practical, simple outline of the Four Noble Truths. And for the Eightfold Path, I um, again, another free PDF uh, monograph by Bhikkhu Bodhi on the Eightfold Path, available online. So um, each of the, so the Eightfold Path has eight steps along the way. Each of them is preceded by the word right. Um, but there's nothing right. Right should not imply right and wrong, but it's more about uh, wholesome or complete. Um, and so they are clustered into three um, groupings. So one grouping is called um, um, ethical conduct or sila. So the three groupings are sila, samadhi, and panya. So the ethical conduct group is, is the, the, the components are right speech, right action, right livelihood. But in the, concept, in the context of basics of Vipassana practice, what I do is just pick one aspect of my life where I want to behave ethically. You know, it could be with patience, it could be with generosity, uh, it could be with um, just watching my speech in one area of my life. I mean, I won't pick how I speak with my wife. That's not easy. But I may pick how I relate with my patients, you know, with my uh, patients at the clinic. You know, I may have a busy day, but my patient is entitled to the time that they, they've, they've been pr promised. And so watch what I say, how I say, so that I don't make them feel like their doctor is impatient. And that's easy to do. There's nothing personal there. Uh, I have an intention to be professional. So, so although it says right speech, and if you read up about right speech, it's overwhelming. I mean, no mere mortal can practice all elements of right speech. But again, this, uh, the Vipassana practice is more about setting the intention for a wholesome way of living. So just pick one small area of a wholesome conduct. It could be with eating. It could be with sexual conduct. Uh, some of you who have been coming here for a while may be familiar with the concept of the five precepts. So you can just pick one precept and practice with it. Uh, and another one is there is a list called the paramis. And these are uh, what are called the ten perfections. Um, they include generosity, loving kindness, etc. Uh, again, just pick one. And again, don't aim for perfection. Just say, say to yourself for the next three months, I'm going to do what I can to at least hold on to this concept of whatever wholesome concept and practice it to the best I can. The second grouping is um, called the wisdom group or panya. And it, it comprises of right intention and right view. This to me is the core of um, practice. I don't know if I've said other course, but this is one of the many course. Um, because, as I said many times, it's the commitment to practice that will keep you coming back or that will stop you from wandering away every time you get disappointed. And then I was thinking of how to convey this, um, and I don't know if this is correct, but this is what I came up with. So when I got married, 
you know, there was some notion that I want to be a decent husband. But then quickly all these ideas, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I should do this, came to mind. And I failed in many ways and probably, you know, succeeded in some other ways. But it's after I started practicing here, I realized that none of those individual acts really matter. Because then you can get caught up into, is this the right thing to do? Is this the wrong thing to do? It's more about setting the intention of, or the view of, I want what's right in in the context of a marriage is to be a decent husband or a decent spouse. The decision about what is right or wrong will show up if the heart is in the right place at that right point. I've never given my wife chocolate or flowers for Valentine's Day. But that's the, what I realize is that people mistake the act for the intention. And I, just because I've gotten away without chocolates and flowers on Thanksgiving doesn't mean all of you can as well. <laughs> but, but it's the same way with, our, with, with my patients. I may want to be a decent, caring physician. What I learned from them is that on days when I... I'm busy or I come across as impatience, they will forgive me because they know that my intention is right. They didn't get it on the first day or the second day. Over the period of years as I've been seeing them for a while or I've worked with the same nurses for a while, people know that this person may come across as impatient or rude on some days, but his intention is in the right direction. So same way, when you're committing yourself to this practice, it's that it what precedes your action. It's what gives us the kind of gentle direction to our lives. So that even if you don't practice for a few weeks, that's part of it. Because it will help you get back. But if you decide that the person I'm committing to the person I practice and I'm going to practice, I'm going to meditate every day for 30 minutes without fail. When you fail, when that day you don't meditate, you're going to start beating yourself up and without recognizing that this is part of what the mind does. Did that make sense, that analogy? For those of you who are not married, think of other situations in your life. And be thankful you're not married. (laughs) No, I am very happily married. Um, And then the other part of intention, and I'm going to quote this. So many of you may have come across this. It's attributed variously to Lao Tzu, to Buddha, down to Mahatma Gandhi and Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) All in good company, yeah. Um, Watch your thoughts because they become words. Watch your words because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits because they become your character. Watch your character because that becomes your destiny. But to me, the and I know the Buddha couldn't have said this because if he had said it, he would have started off with watch your intentions because they lead to your thoughts. And so, it's that it, and this insight came to me only during a retreat. It's like when the mind is calm enough and you start watching your thoughts as they arise in slow motion, and then it's amazing when your mind wanders off to something that's filled with anger or lust or craving, the content of your thoughts changes so quickly. And just, that's my intention went away from being here with the present moment to drifting off to some sense craving and the, the, the content of the thoughts changes. That's the powerful effect of mind on thoughts or intention on thoughts. So, and if you really get into Vipassana practice and you want to read, listen to as many talks as you can, read up about right view and right intention. And a, and a great contemporary teacher who I really admire and respect in this regard is um, Uttejaniya. And again, all of his talks and his uh, his writings are all free, available online. Okay. And then the final list. So the first list was the Four Noble Truths, which is why of practice. The second list was the Eightfold Path, which is the how of practice. And the third list, which I found very helpful, is uh, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, or the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the true mechanics of practice. This is once you got the, why am I doing this? And then you have a general sense of, this is how I'm going to commit myself to practice, and then the true mechanics of practice. And the four foundations of mindfulness are mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of what we call Vedana or feeling tone, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of Dhamma.
Again, I'll just leave it there just because it's a whole separate topic. But this is the totality of mindfulness practice or Vipassana practice. And so it's not that I connect to all of this every time I feel like I've stagnated or I'm plateauing, but I connect with at least one or one of these in a fairly deep way uh, to find some energy, some direction, and some purpose. And in a very mindless way, I left the last sheet of paper at home. So I am going to pull up. Okay, and it was the summary part. So to summarize, um, Vipassana practice is more than just, uh, sorry, Vipassana is more than just mindfulness practice. Oh, the other point I forgot to mention, there is a fourth aspect to mindfulness, which is a very contemporary 21st century phenomenon, which is the application of mindfulness to almost every aspect of modern day life. It started off in uh, in the mental health profession, then went on to the medical profession in general. Now you can do anything mindfully. You can do mindful driving, mindful skiing, mindful jumping, mindful movie watching. It, it, it's as if mindful is just a simple uh, adverb you can add, and just because you added it, added that word to any activity, you become a, a wise person doing it. The, you, you can just because you're putzing around on internet, going from website to website mindfully doesn't make it a mindful, wholesome, wisdom-laden practice. So the reason I'm, I mention this is because, um, especially in, the, in my mental health profession, it's become so commonplace. Even professionals make it out to be so simple. Just be mindful of your breath, just be mindful of your body, and your pain will go away. Or just stay with your anxiety mindfully, and you'll feel the anxiety just wash away. Nothing could be more further from the truth. It's, it's commoditization of mindfulness, but more importantly, it really does not serve um, the public and the patients well, because this is pretty hard practice. But hard not as in difficult, but because we are so impatient for quick results that when results don't come quickly, we find anything we do hard. And so, with uh, especially again in my profession, where people are suffering from all kinds of mental anguish and distress, to convey this, such deep practice that requires a level of commitment with time and effort, to use that word to give someone an anguish, a kind of false hope that you just practice this mindfulness and you'll feel better in a few weeks, uh, to me is um, unconscionable. So I had to do that, make that editorial comment. So, so Vipassana is not just a practice, it's a commitment. And so I would encourage everyone to really read up on the Four Noble Truths, because without that framework, you really are randomly trying out something. Again, it's like playing the piano. This is an analogy I'm just coming up with, so let me see where it takes me. You know, I listen to music. I, some days I like classical piano, some days I like jazz piano, some days I like easy listening. But that's all I'm doing. I have no notion of what playing music or composing music is like. So trying Vipassana practice without the basic framework of the Four Noble Truths is somewhat akin to, you know, trying different kinds of, um, you know, piano music. Let me see what, um, you know, let me see what um, I get good at. I'm not going to get good at but trying one kind of music for a few weeks at a time. Um, the second is that you commit yourself but then the way you ground your commitment is by signing up for piano lessons and signing up with a teacher. That's why for all the web-based piano lessons available, most people who are honest will tell you that they stop practicing after a while. You need that person that you commit to, usually a teacher, or coming to a sangha like this, coming, uh, connecting with a few dharma buddies, so they will reinforce your, your wholesome intention. We are all weak human beings. And so we need all the support we can get. Um, and then recognizing that there is a not only a cognitive framework of why we practice, but there is a well-laden um, practical framework of how to go about the practice. And then remember to connect with one aspect of sila. You can do one hour of committed meditation every day, 
But if the rest 15 hours of your waking life is complete mindless activity, you are going to get nowhere. And those 15 hours, one way to connect with some aspect of wholesome mindfulness is to commit to one aspect of sila or um, ethical conduct. Driving is a great place to start. And we all of us suffer. I mean, I suffer every time I get on the scooter to come here. But that's okay. I'm, I'm 50 years old. I can't undo 30 years of bad habits in, you know, six months or a year. But that's all. My commitment is not to be a good driver. It's to be aware that I'm an idiot. I'm a jackass of a driver. So. <laughs> and then I go into my body and feel, you know, it's a beautiful spring day. I'm sitting on my scooter. What, you know, I want it to be outside. Feel the sun, feel the breeze. And I'm literally, you know, ready to take off when the light turns green. There's something completely idiotically mindless about that. But that's fun. You know, you really, that's, I'm understanding my idiocy. Oh. Yes. And I'll end with these quotes. This is from the Buddha. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. So the whole idea of mindfulness is to have this, uh, the mindfulness, or some teachers use the word heedfulness or heedlessness. Heedfulness is to be aware of your thoughts. Thoughts will happen. The thing is, a thought arises. If it happens heedlessly, your awareness gets caught up, and then you go off. But when it happens with mindfulness and heedfulness, it arises. You watch the either craving or aversion that, that arises with it, and then you find an equilibrium, so you don't get carried away. And this is by. Thich Han, for things to reveal themselves to us, we need to be ready to abandon our views about them. And so we, we, we start off with the belief that we know so many things. And so that's the problem with um, I'm being mindful of my anger misses the part that I have no idea what anger is all about. So sometimes we may leave people with the impression that if you just are mindful of your anger, you'll understand it and it'll go away. No, you have to get actually deeper into the anger. And so that's the part of watching because if you get angry, you have an unguarded thought that arises and then you go off into the story of the anger. That was the first uh, point by the Buddha. And then the second point is about we can also quickly believe that I know where the anger came from and you create a story without actually giving yourself the chance to understand what anger is. I'm going to stop talking and <laughs> solicit some questions. We have a few minutes. And the young man has a mic. I'm just wondering if you could repeat the, um, you mentioned the PDF on the Eightfold Path, and I couldn't catch the name of who that was. So I'll have to spell it for you. His name Bhikkhu, B-H-I-K-K-H-U, Bodhi, B-O-D-H-I. But Google will do a great job. Just type eightfold PDF. The first hit is that. And also do um, Noble Four Truths PDF. You'll get Ajahn Sumedho's very first one. Um, the last thing you said uh, really resonated with me about how our ideas. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like they can kind of get in the way of the actual experience of them. Um, you know, I used to reinforce this kind of idea that I knew how suffering felt and I would kind of put it in the middle of my practice and wasn't really going anywhere with it. And I kind of, throughout this practice and what you're saying, like I feel like uncertainty is a really valuable tool for uh, just, yeah, feeling the actual physical sensations. And uh, yeah, I was wondering if you could just touch on that a little bit more because it was, that was nice. And so I'll give the example that I've, taught the most. Um, so <clears throat> before I became a psychiatrist, I was an anesthesiologist and then made the switch because of chronic back pain. And then um, a large part of my practice was doing psychological. Can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Um, so I had a personal interest in understanding pain. I don't like doctors, surgeons, pills. Um, but then there was also the sense that you know, there's more to pain than just the physical sensation because the same pain at one point could feel excruciating, and then just five, six minutes later, um, I wouldn't be aware of it. Say if I were really engrossed on a TV program, and suddenly the pain wasn't registering. 
but the program ends and suddenly the pain is so bad. But if the pain were truly 8 out of 10, it wouldn't have allowed me to watch the TV program. So that was the kind of just the beginnings of Nebula's sense of pain is more than just the physical sensation. And then as I got into clinical practice and then connected here, the whole world of the nature of chronic pain came. So, so often, you know, we mistake pain for the suffering. Okay. So pain is often unavoidable. So whether it's physical pain, so I get into an accident and I injure my back, pain is unavoidable. So that's not what the Buddha said about life is suffering. You know, bad things happen in life, but there are other things that we do or the way we behave or relate to it that actually cause the true suffering. So I, um, I've injured my back, I have chronic back pain. And so then I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at work, I'm trying to get my job done, my back's killing me. So I hate this back pain, you know, but for this I would have still been in anesthesia, I would have been doing this, it's ruined my life. Okay, that's the second layer of pain. Uh, second layer of distress. So you have your physical pain, which is about yay big, and then you have your um, so this reactive situation. So um, like at work, or I'm planning to go for a walk on a Saturday morning, and I wake up and my back's bothering me, and I can't join my friends. So there is the sense of anger at my back pain, disappointment that I can't join my friends, and a grief that you know, wonder what my life is going to be like if at this age I'm trapped like this 10 years from now, what's my pain going to be like? But that then sets off all kinds of stories about me being in a wheelchair, me being a burden on my wife. So physical pain, emotional pain, and thought-laden pain. Okay, so the physical pain is unavoidable. My feeling angry is also unavoidable. You know, I want my life to go this way and something comes and slams me and says, no, you're not going to go for a walk today. Of course I feel angry, but I can be aware of that. But even if I'm not aware of that, the next step of stories about the future, I can become aware of that. So the layers, there's a great teacher called Shenzhen Yang who talks about this aspect. So I have 5 out of 10 units of pain from the actual injury, 5 out of 10 units of pain from the emotional reaction, and five out of ten from all the stories that my mind created. I can't do anything about this pain. For a while, I can't do anything about the fact that I am truly angry that I have pain. But I may be able to do something about stopping my mind from spinning away. But even if I can't, if I'm just aware of them, my overall suffering is five plus five plus five, which is 15. What happens more often when you are mindless is, it all becomes multiplicative. It becomes like a pig's breakfast. It becomes five times five times five because they're kind of feeding off of each other. When I get angry and frustrated that I can't walk, I'm all tight. My muscles are all contracted. So guess what happens to the disc when my muscles are contracted? It squelches the disc. My pain gets worse. And when I'm angry and frustrated, my thoughts are more likely to be spinning off. And those fearsome thoughts lead to fear what do, I, what do I want to do when I'm afraid? I want to run. There's no place to run. That energy is again stuffed in my body, which increases my actual physical pain. So five times five times five, you do the math. I'm a psychiatrist. But it's definitely more than 15. So that's one way of understanding. The other thing that the Buddha said is the concept of the second arrow. Have you heard of the second arrow? Right. For me, it's not the second arrow. It's the sixth, seventh, eighth arrows. I mean, the second arrow, I'm barely aware of it, you know. But 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 practice, there are some situations, especially at work, where I have come back to the point where if I have to have a difficult conversation with a uh, colleague or a patient's family, um, you know, five years ago, I would have realized the whole tension in my body after all the conversation was done. So now I walk into a meeting with the second and the third arrows. The first is, this is going to be an awkward conversation. The second arrow is, it sucks, and I hate it. The third arrow is, this guy knows that I'm nervous, and he's looking down on me, or whatever the stories. But I, I think I stopped there. And for me, it's now the sense that, you know, honey, you're a basic human being. You're prone to these kinds of insecurities and emotions. So just be with the way they are. And so I'm staying at the third arrow. So I don't know if I answered your question, but that's the, the kind of, notion of layered experience.
you never get a short answer for a question from Lisa. Um, I have a, a question kind of reflecting back on the craving, um, particularly when um, you want to avoid having someone in your life. Um, and I guess I'm making the assumption that you're not suggesting that we include everyone in our life if they might not be healthy, but I guess I'm wondering your thoughts on perhaps mindfully disengaging from someone versus doing so out of anger or out of pure emotion or thought. So the, the other thing that most teachers would tell you is that uh, pick your battles. And so that's why I said if you want to practice um, some strong emotion and want to be aware of it mindfully, don't pick strong emotions that come in the context of uh, close personal relationships. There are so many layers, and especially if it comes to parents, you really want to stay away for a while. But just, just because so much... No, okay, this is not a confession time. So, <laughs> uh, but because there are pre-verbal aspects to our relationship with our parents, our bonding starts before we had any words. And so when you start trying to figure out the relationship with parents, you come to a point where words... You know, it's the classic saying of, uh, with anyone, I can't live without him, I can't live with him, kind of stuff. And so pick your battle. Same with um, people who are really close to us romantically. We often regress in, you know, in moments of intimacy. And so there are aspects of those relationships that are also um, beyond quick analysis. So you really, work I found easy, just because I leave work. I wasn't born with the, my colleagues at work. And so if you want to get a sense of you know, what is it that pushes my buttons? You know, what are the, what, what's the personality cognitive framework that I have that reacts to these particular stimuli? Then pick some neutral things. And what struck me was the reason I mentioned the road is my wife and I could be driving on the same I-94 with traffic and I'm just a bundle of nerves. I'm watching every idiotic driver out there and she's totally clueless. And there are other aspects of life when I'm completely Buddhized and she is all a bundle of frustration. So in order to learn about this, you may want to start off with a similar analogous situation. That way you don't come to any false conclusions about, I'm just going to go barrel through this anger and understand it. Um, some of these powerful angers, uh, you really may have a lot of difficulty. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.